Thanks for listening to the Pro Video Podcast. Weekly insights into everything video. Here's the host, Blair Walker. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pro Video Podcast. The podcast covers everything about professional video content creation. And each week we have special guests who we can explore various areas of our industry. This week we have Mike Seymour. He's an industry legend, FX guide, FX PhD. He's a researcher, he's an interviewer, he's a VFX artist. He's also a podcaster, a father, a sailor, a mentor to quite a few of us out there. So I'm really privileged to welcome Mike Seymour to the Pro Video Podcast. Thanks for being here, Mike. Well, I'm happy to be here, though that's a bit of an introduction. I don't know I can live up to it, but uh, yes, happy to be here. Uh, you don't have to live up to it. You've already proven it. Actually, you've had some good people on, right? You had uh, Tim Clapham on, right? Um, yeah. So there's been some good people on the podcast already. Yeah, a lot of Australasian artists, um, such as Tim and um, John Dickinson as well. So pleasure to have them. The goal of the podcast for me was to connect with people who have been influential in my career or who are influential in the industry, which is why you were the top of my list for people to have on. Well, thank you. It's very kind of you. So I first came across you when I was going out on my own. I had been in a post-production facility and going out on my own internally at an advertising agency, I was by myself and I needed guidance, I needed knowledge. And FXPHD had just started up at that time and um, that became the wealth of knowledge for me to grow in my career because of the content that you were creating. And when did FX Guide and FX PhD start and what are those two sites? Well, I think I'm right in saying that it was 99 we started FX Guide. There's some, it's lost in, in mythology slightly. Um, and even the uh, Wayback Machine uh, kind of peters out. So we sort of started really early in the day. Um, we started FX Guide partly because uh, it was the first time that web browsers, that sort of graphical web browsers had, had come out. Um, this is kind of early pre netscape time frame, and uh, a number of us that were flame artists wanted to communicate with each other. So the web was growing. It was a fun time to be doing stuff, and we decided that um, we'd connect up. So I was friends with a guy called Jeff Huser, who obviously I'm still friends with, um, partner in FX Guide. And Jeff and I were talking, thought it'd be a good idea to do a, a site together of sort of tips and tricks. And then Jeff said, oh, we should get this other guy, John Montgomery, involved because uh, he's in Chicago, and he's um, he's got a sort of you know, backlog of old emails about flame stuff. It's like, okay, sure, let's do that. Of course, uh, John became the third partner. Well, at least the three of us formed it together. Um, and these guys are my best friends uh, and have been ever since. But the thing that was funny about it is that um, the name came from Jeff sitting at his uh, home and we were trying to come up with a name. We thought it should be sort of general and about visual effects, but nothing that was sort of too obvious. We didn't want to use the word digital or, you know, kind of obvious things. And Jeff looked down at his coffee table and there was a copy of TV Guide. And he said, that'll do. Let's do FX Guide. Well, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do FX Guide then. Um, and so we grabbed that in the days. It was really easy to grab any URL uh, and we we're off to the races. And then uh, 10 years ago, uh, we decided that we would um, – sort of take the training part of what FX Guide was starting to lean into and turn it into FX PhD. And at that time, Jeff was hardcore on features. So he said he didn't want to go full-time or anything on that. And John and I did because we were slightly over clients and looking for a new challenge. And so that's when the training consulting site kind of ran in parallel or started being in parallel to uh, FX Guide. Back in those days, 10 years ago, the restrictions of internet and getting that content out, um, I was the only one at work who was allowed to torrent legally <laughs> because we had to get um, really good quality training and every week there would be a class come out that would be um, high resolution back in those days, <laughs> but um, it wasn't it wasn't HD. It was just that the visually you could really see what was going on, which was really different for the time where everyone was downloading videos at 320 by 240 to view on. Yeah, it's funny. Now, the first cameras we started making classes with were literally like PAL cameras. Like we'd shoot with, you know, basically handy cams. This is like, you know, 101 first year, first class ever. Um, and of course, you know, 
we'd think nothing uh, these days of, you know, shooting stuff on red cameras or, you know, whatever. So, uh, yeah, so it was quite a transition. But I think the, the technology and FX PhD were really in sync in that, you know, uh, there was new tech coming out and it was enabling us to do more. And it was at the same time people wanted to see more and do more. So it all was a match made in tech heaven. Yeah. Was for you personally a huge transition from being a visual effects artist, um, supervisor to moving into being an educator full time. How was that transition for you? It wasn't that hard actually, because don't forget when we were doing, um, when I was full time flame, we were still doing lots of, um, sort of teaching and consulting work. We just weren't doing it full time. And also we started doing these live events in Las Vegas. So I remember, um, sitting in the house of blues in Chicago with Jeff and John, and another guy who was just a friend. And uh, we'd done several events in Vegas and they were sellouts. Like we just literally would have people, you know, queuing up for tickets and we uh, didn't make any money off them particularly. We, we made money, but we spent all of it in Vegas on parties. But anyway, um, the point was we could get to a few hundred people in Vegas. And I remember thinking at the time, we should take this thing and, you know, take it global because clearly there's a need for artists sharing artist level stuff. And the other thing that's always been central to FX Guide, which then of course became part of FX PhD, is the idea that there's a lot of really good high tech stuff that happens in our industry. And you kind of need a translator that sits between what I'm going to call the SIDGRAPH paper and the artist. The artist wants to know, how do I apply stuff? And I'd like to know a bit more beyond just what buttons to press. But the technical guy that writes the paper is like just writing maths. And that's not what's wanted. You want somewhere in the middle. And so it was the in the middle that we always found to be our sweet spot. Uh, and so like even today, I've been doing stuff on new um, shaders and rendering approaches that Pixar is doing with hair. And I, you know, I'm talking to the guys at uh, Cornell University and at Pixar about what they've done, but trying to get the the essence of that, like what is it about the specular? What is it? Why have you got three lobes? What's going on there? So that I can translate that to an artist, so an artist can say, oh, okay, I get it now, rather than just play with buttons until something looks good. They can sort of see why that is, and hopefully give them that extra bit of insight, which is the, I think it's both an edge, but also it's just like a, a level of professionalism. Good artists want to know what's going on. Like good painters understand their inks and their paints and their oils that's not that they want to spend their whole time just making oils they want to make pretty pictures but good artists understand their tools yeah and that's something i've definitely appreciated in the learning that i've gained from you and fx guide um knowing what is coming out at SIGGRAPH you've said many times if you want to know what's going to happen in the future of our industry and the, what's going to be in the tools look at FX, uh, look at SIGGRAPH and what's coming out in the papers but what FX Guide and what you offer is uh, not only deciphering that into a more accessible information but it's also with your knowledge saying where you feel the industries are going because you could look at every potential paper that comes out but not all of those are actually going to turn into a reality for the industry, are they? Okay, but here you're giving me too much credit because the thing is I just know lots of good people. <laughs> so, so, for example, the hot thing for me right now is, um, is real-time virtual production, on-set virtual production. I think the way that production's moving on set and the virtualization of the process is just pivotal to what's going on in the industry. It's not that I'm just really clever. It's just that I know lots of clever people and that lots of clever people are doing this stuff. And so I, you know, watch all my clever friends doing this stuff and go, aha, I should, I should learn a bit more about that. And honestly, there are major films in production now that we'll see in a few years time that are just completely redefining what filmmaking is. And uh, so we know that's coming. And the thing is, what you want to do is position yourself so that you're in a you know, position to take advantage of it. I'm not saying everyone should jump into it right now because obviously you need to be able to make money and you need to be able to perform functions. But you, you don't want to be as the person that's left, you know, on the sort of older box because somebody else has come along and jumped on with the newer techniques and you were kind of left behind. It's it's less creative. It's also less professionally rewarding. Um so I think there are a class of people that want to know what's coming so that when an opportunity, like let's say you you know what's happening with this stuff and somebody mentions a job and it's a bit left of field, but it involves these special new tools and you're like, aha, okay, I know what that stuff is. I'm going to jump on that because I've been waiting to have a chance to do that. 
versus passing on it and then discovering, you know, 12 months later, oh, I had no idea that I just said no to joining the avatar team or yeah. no to joining the, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, there's something about getting it on your radar that I think is really important. And that is what I really liked about the background fundamentals classes, that it really made so much um, information available through those weekly classes. Something that I really enjoyed was the HDRI series that you were doing. And that that was a long time before 360 video became a reality, but it really impacted, for me personally, my understanding and knowledge when suddenly everyone's oh, this is all new, and it's like, well, actually, it's not that new because I had heard about it through the courses that I've been doing a few years before. Yeah, well, good. I mean, I should point out, I haven't stopped doing background fundamentals. I've just paused doing background fundamentals. I'm actually gearing up for more background fundamentals as we speak. But um, I had a little side project that I had to get involved with that took me, like, quite a lot of work. And every once in a while... Um, you know, one is indulged in the uh, process of being able to, we were restructuring FXPHD that allowed me to do this as well. So John's been, of course, um, at the forefront of FXPHD while I've been uh, obviously in the background. But uh, yes, it's, uh, it's not it's not past tense background fundamentals. <laughs> excellent. That's really excellent to know. Um, that particular project that took a bit of your time, are you able to speak about that? Yeah, sure. It was... Uh, presented at SIDGRAPH and it, we did a completely digital virtual human and we picked me. We picked me partly because it's really easy to get ethics approval on me uh, to torture me. And then also I knew wherever I would be, I would be there as well. And so it was much cheaper than flying an actor wherever I was going. So we did the uh, head scanning at USC ICT. We did the uh, eyes at uh, Disney Zurich. Um, we worked with just some of the best people in the world from, you know, Paul DeBevic to the team at Epic Games to uh, Cubic Motion Manchester to Three Lateral in uh, Serbia to um, AI specialists like Loom AI in San Francisco. Uh, we had a team in China. <laughs> um, and putting that huge team together to do that uh, was important. And it's important because if PhD and FX Guide are going to offer an authoritative position, we actually have to know something. <laughs> it's not enough just to, you know, sort of take whatever press release is given to us and just regurgitate it. And so I felt very much like um, there was a sea change and then I needed to get in front of it. And three things were pivotal in that sea change for me. Uh, faces, rendering and real time. And I was like, okay, we need to do an A. Like if it was a game, you'd call it a triple A game. If it was a film, you'd call it a tentpole film. But it just had to be world class and real, you know, real and and something that we would have own the copyright on in the sense we wouldn't be stopped from talking about it. Um, so... To do that, we mounted this huge thing. And also, I decided to, you know, try and go and get my own actual PhD. So I've been getting my doctorate while doing this, while, you know, learning new skills and hopefully, hopefully uh, pushing the um, the uh, ball down the field. And I should point out, the stuff I'm talking about, this um, face stuff that I did at SIDGRAPH, was with the WikiHuman project. The project allows us to actually distribute all of this data. So it's not just like we've got my face done, but as you'll be seeing over the coming weeks and months, we're giving away all that data. Now, this is pretty unprecedented, but you can imagine there's quite a lot of paperwork to get through to get these various companies to sign on to not only giving us time and access to get all the stuff done, but then giving it away as well. Um, but it's terribly important to the industry that you have high quality assets that people can learn with. Um, but this isn't like, let's get a camera and go shoot some stuff. Uh, this was like, let's you know build a a giant uh, high resolution thing with 16K textures that can be rendered in nine milliseconds that is fully puppeteered with non, well, with markerless facial tracking and um, deep learning and just like so many things that I was interested in. Because when I started it, deep learning wasn't part of the equation. But now the other part of my interest, enormous personal interest is AI and deep learning. And so hopefully, um, hopefully, it's not too arrogant. Hopefully I can contribute to con continue to contribute to the community, but now that will include the stuff that's coming in terms of virtual production and AI deep learning. Um, and so if you're watching Background Fundamentals near the end of the last sort of set, you'll notice me getting really into faces and getting into AI stuff before I went, just excuse me one second while I go <laughs> and do a bunch of uh, stuff offline, which uh, of course I'm now sort of coming back from. 
That's awesome. So the on FX Guide, that's the Meet Mike, where the listeners can find out some more on that. And also, you're no stranger to um, facial capture um, with Paul DeVerbeck. On previous um, classes, you have been on, on his light stages before as well. Yeah, I've known Paul for many years. He's been sailing with me here in Sydney. Great guy. Terrific guy. Of course, he's now at Google, but um, yeah. Deep learning and AI. Uh, some some people feel that these are scary propositions for the future and what roles and what tasks will be taken away from the artist. What's your personal views on how this isn't something to be feared or is it to be concerned about? What, what are your views on the future industry and the effects that these will have upon it? Well, it's going to be the biggest change we've seen. I mean, it's going to be as big as digital um, cinematography was in the sense that, you know, we moved from film to digital. It totally changed the equation. Obviously, a lot of people managed to get in front of that. Other people were, you know, obviously not uh, as able to take advantage of it. Um, there will be a huge change, like 40% of jobs in our industry will change. But the jobs that are good jobs will be those people that are able to use the AI tools and the jobs that aren't good jobs um, will probably go away. Um, but certainly from my point of view, it's not a scary thing. It's just a really important thing to understand. I mean, it will be that my kids will laugh at the notion of someone doing hand roto, uh, for example. It'll be, you know, like there's a whole lot of stuff that um, will happen. And the AI happens not like... Terminator. Like we used AI or deep learning to do the markless facial tracking when I was doing the live puppeteering because the notion of deep data is that you have training data. The training data takes a long time to either generate if it's synthetic data or, or work with, but then it runs really fast when you're running it. And so you see that's where you kind of, you, people like think of it as, oh, this is going to be the thing that takes over. Well, no, I'm just going to have a tool now that runs super fast because I engineered myself to a position where I've got good training data and I've learned from it and now I can do things really, really quickly, which of course will just facilitate filmmaking in the same way that digital cinematography facilitated, you know, very fast turnarounds, but didn't reduce the amount of filming that was done. It just meant that if you're a clapper loader and you didn't bother learning anything past clapper loading, then you're probably no longer a clapper loader. Yeah. My first experience in this was when you were looking at the, um, that with particle simulations, with fluid simulations, and running numerous hundreds of simulations that took time, but then the learning that the AI gained from that, you could then run them in real time. So that was a really, um, for me, a really clear way of how those applications could take out the frustration and the time consumption of what we experience now and just speed it up. So we're actually doing the fun, creative part of our roles. But yeah, that's what I, what really excited me when I first learned about um, AI and deep learning from you. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, that was a pivotal paper and it was a real moment in, in time where we all went, I think, oh my God, like I thought this was going in one direction and these guys have used it for fluid sims. Holy crap. If you can use it for fluid sims, what else can you use it for? And I can tell you right now, like some of the stuff that, um, as I say, is in the in the research labs that maybe we're not allowed to talk about uh, yet is just going to blow your mind. I mean, I've seen this stuff, like I've personally experienced it. I'm not like saying somebody told me about it. I personally touched it and played with it. And it just, it's like, it's like you stepped into the future. It is, it, I, I had a grin from ear to ear. I couldn't stop smiling. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing so this stuff's coming i have you don't take my word for it i mean it just is it, there's no way to stop it the question is are you going to get a reaction to it or are you going to like you know act with it um if you're going to just be buffeted by it then you know it's going to pound you like a wave pounds you but if you ride it you can go really far um something that i've always found is just being aware of um what's going on like you said having your eyes out to the future it is quite difficult i think as somebody who's very much on on the tools and creating work um to not um deep dive into a subject that i can't apply so what i found is um when red came out which was the um digital cinematography revolution 
there was a huge opportunity for um, people who were editing and color grading to understanding red and that workflow where if you didn't have that knowledge, you load up the footage and it looked completely crap and you had no idea how much potential you had there. But what I also found and a real, real big lesson for me is I, I learned so much about the red workflows, but I didn't promote it to those around me enough that I wasn't getting the jobs and opportunities. So it's a really big part is to also promote your knowledge to those who um, are interested in, in these types of projects as well. So that's from me yes. personally. Which, which is why I jokingly said that I should change my business card to read publicity slot because <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I totally agree with you. But I also, when, we're doing, uh, when we were doing background fundamentals um, like a few years ago, we did a whole lot of stuff in what I call business. And we did that stuff in business for twofold. One, because of the importance of just being able to do that, but also the need to give people the tools and the training to compete in a billion dollar industry where it's not so much self-promotion and publicity so much as that I think it is um, just facilitating getting you into the right positions. And quite frankly, it's hard for people to know what you know and it's hard to know what you'd be good at. And so you have to position yourself sometimes so that they can see that, you know, you'd be a really good person and they should take advantage of these skills that you have. But it's, it's you know, everyone's got their own concerns and their own things that they're worried about. And it's a little harsh to think that everybody else is just going to notice what you can do um, yeah. if you can't get out and kind of communicate that. So, yeah, I think the business side of things gets way too dished. I mean, it's very quick to kind of be rude about it. And yet those that are good at it um, are people that I really respect. I mean, a lot of artists out there that I really respect are incredibly good at communicating effectively um, their skills and what they can bring to a project and as a consequence work on great projects. Yeah, you're creating those opportunities. And that's something also too that I remember uh, saying is looking at where the competition is in the market and um, not, you know, finding where the gaps are and the opportunities are and positioning yourself in those so that you're not fighting against the noise. Yeah. Yeah, it is true, isn't it? You can really just play, follow the leader or you can define your own space and by changing the game or changing the book, you can, you know, own it. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it is, I mean, there's, you know, best practice I think is good. And occasionally I torture myself with comparing myself to others, but I'm really guilty of this being an only child. But um, <laughs> the reality is, yeah, sometimes you've just got to have the brave kind of whatever, arrogance perhaps to just say, I'm going to go in my own path. And I think this is a really solid path and I'm going to stand away from the pack. And of course, it's much easier to get noticed if you do that. Yeah, I, I had um, a mentor at my company at FCB New Zealand, they're really good at um, teaming up younger staff with senior management, those that they felt had real p potential influence on the company. So he was my mentor for a number of years, and he basically just said, your, your brand awareness is shit. <laughs> Nobody knows what you're capable of. You're doing all this amazing work, but you have to let people know. And, and, and as an artist, you feel a little bit insecure about tooting your own horn, and, it's, and I found it so much easier when I treated myself as almost a brand that I needed people to be aware of. That brand wouldn't get out there if I wasn't to start saying what, what was possible with that brand. So it became a lot easier when I changed that mindset. It's not about me. It's about actually enabling others to know what is possible. Yeah, I mean, at that time when you're at F you're doing the stuff that you're referring to, I'm pretty sure FCB's logo was they were the most effective agency. Um, like that was the thing, they're most effective. And I think that effectiveness is a good concept. It's like you're not saying I'm the best, I'm like the cleverest, I'm the smartest. You're just saying I'm really effective at doing this. And then people go, oh, great, because I want somebody that's really effective and can get this done. Yeah. Um, and it's a different thing than than saying I'm good or I'm you know great or I'm brilliant. It's just saying I'm really effective at doing this because I probably put in the hard hours to learn the skills that are required to be able to do these things and I've bothered understanding the problems and I can apply that. And I feel a lot better about saying I can be effective in helping you with your problems than, I'd say, than saying to somebody, I think I'd be really good for you or I'd be really yeah. brilliant on this or, you know, I'd be really smart. But I'm happy to say I'm really effective. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
the agency's um, tagline is also um, the change agency. So we're very much about um, changing behaviour um, with Ministry of Health and the depression with um, the journal. It was about um, changing people's perceptions of mental health before, yep. so that they could then feel open to finding and seeking the right help. So I think that um, change is a really big one and I think it can be um, easy to get into a groove and not notice that there's change coming, so you better be ready for it too. Yeah, Jeff uh, Huser is a huge exponent of this idea of just change is the only constant. And uh, way before I was kind of tuned into this, I mean, talking like 20 years ago, he was just going on and on about change and embracing it in a way that like you expect it and you want it, not you regrudge it and you're fighting it. And it's just a mindset, really. Um, but, I mean, the other thing is it gives you opportunities, right? I mean, there is yeah. no greater thing for opportunities than a shifting landscape. As it shifts, you can just, you know, move out and, and around and obstacles that were otherwise placed in front of you. If things didn't move, those obstacles would be really hard to uh, to get over. Yeah, especially in our industry. So with FX Guide and FX PhD, um, John Montgomery and Jeff Hughes are amazing professors on, on courses and uh, contributors to FX Guide. But FX PhD has had such a wealth of amazing um, lecturers and um, professors over the years, the likes of Tim Clapham. Um, and um, I'm thinking Stu Matchwitz, another big influence on my career with filming and things like that. Um, Gareth Edwards, um, taking classes early on, bef well before making um, feature films. So your connections with this wealth of talent, how, how did that start out when you were starting FX PhD and finding the right people to teach the content that you knew the industry would value? Um, well, I think FX Guide was the, the thing that opened the doors in the early days because um, if you're a skilled professional and, and you took away FX Guide in the early days, there weren't a lot of publications or things that were doing a reasonable job in explaining things properly. And so you'd be very frustrated, right? You'd put out a press thing and it would be misinterpreted and they'd say, oh, you've solved this or that. And you'd be like, no, no, that's not the point. And you kind of it just was annoying. And we spent a lot of time to get things right. And so I think that got us on the radar. I remember being taken out to dinner by this senior guy at a major studio. And he was literally like, uh, almost everybody I talked to in the press, this is a few years ago, are like morons. I was like, wow, I'm really taken back. And he was like, but you seem to, you know, spend all this time on stuff. And like, how could it possibly be financially viable? And it was like, well, kind of the business model was our reputation for not being a moron <laughs> was our R&D. Um, so, you know, I get criticized sometimes because I write articles that are too long on FX Guide. And, and I understand that, right? Like people like really short articles. But the trouble is some of the things we're explaining are really well done in short articles. And also, here's the thing, right? People really focus on <clears throat> how many reads you get, like it's um, a full read, which it isn't, right? It's like somebody like looking at the article and moving on. We have people that spend seven or eight minutes in an article. Now, I think when's the last time you clicked on a just a website generally and spent seven or eight minutes reading something, right? It just doesn't happen. That's never reflected in the metrics. So I can get a lot more hits if I post things about, you know, what's happened with The Bachelorette. And that's fine. But people will be on it for like 10 seconds while they get the headlines and move on. I'll get the hits, but I won't get any respect. And I certainly won't get any nuanced discussion of of how they went about the multi-camera production of The Bachelorette, right? Whereas if you do something that kind of has some weight to it, and some of the articles I've written, I admit, are fairly weighty. But the point is, if you have some sort of meat in there, then it's like, okay, well, I'm not going to get the same number of hits, clearly, because people aren't, you know, all that interested in heavyweight stuff. But the ones we get are more meaningful. And so the more meaningful... Uh, hits translates into reputation, which means that, you know, we've had occasional people have phoned up and said, look, there's got something coming out. We just really don't want this screwed up. Um, we'll let you in on it early so that you can get a handle on it. And then you can, and that's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. And then the other thing is that translates to PhD because 
you know, you're going to get somebody to do something and you make a phone call. And if they've heard of you and you've been a respectful sort of reporter, to use that term, of what they've been doing, well, you've earned the right to sit at the table and you can ask meaningful questions and stuff, which means the next time you go to the next interview, you're going to be well-informed and ask sensible, meaningful questions. So it's kind of like um, it's like our R&D, our, I don't know what you call it really, like our marketing budget is um, is bothering to write and to research things. But I should pay, like, to be totally clear about this, right, like um, the reason that FX PhD is as successful as it is is really not due to me. It's down to John Montgomery. I mean, of the three of us, John is the guy that makes stuff happen. I just tend to be a good talker. But, um, you know, I just can't emphasize enough. Like John is the technical wizard, the central guru and the glue that holds it all together and has been since we started. And I don't do a good enough job explaining that in public. Yeah, I've I've um, just learned so much from John as well. And I... I wanted to focus on Australasia a bit more, but I would love to have um, all three of you on a show at some point and um, talk about your relationship. <laughs> you just get John on a show. John doesn't do the same amount of stuff as I do because he sometimes doesn't feel as comfortable doing it. Um, I think he should. I mean, he's great at it. Um, but yeah, you know, I do a lot of interviews. So I do a lot more kind of front of house stuff in FX Guide. But yeah. John's a genius and, you know, the day that I met those two guys, Jeff and John, was the day that I had a better life. Awesome. Yeah, um, you saying that you're, you're the interviewer, that was a little bit scary for me. I'm not being that many episodes <laughs> in. <laughs> Talking to one of the most respected interviewers in visual effects about um, our industry. But you've got to step up and challenge yourself so um, and do it. I was also just thinking while you were talking about the respect that you gain from people with the articles in the FX Guide, um, it's also the content in the podcasts that you have and the interviews that you have um, with people from um, the feature film industry about visual effects. I've heard it in their voices so many times, that relief of the intelligence of the questions, the understanding of the background you can literally hear that excitement in their voice that they're just not being asked stupid questions. Yeah, it is unfortunately the case that people go for sound bites because the metric that everyone is re rewarded on is just hits. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look, we've had some really juicy stuff that we've left on the cutting room floor because it's just salacious stuff. Um, people talking um, ways that they shouldn't about directors. But, you know, that's a short-run game. Um, the long-run game is just treating artists with respect. And if somebody isn't media savvy in doing interviews and I get them to accidentally say that X or Y director was just stupid and didn't know what he was doing and shot something wrong, that's clickbait. But then the guy's, you know, toast and it hurts his career and it's not yeah. good for anyone. I'm happy to speak without naming names and say, oh, look, you shouldn't do this thing because I had an example of somebody that did this and this was a really bad thing. But, you know, I mean, uh, people are interviewed and it's a, you know, unnerving prospect sometimes. And if you're lucky, you can put them at ease. If you can put them at ease, they're going to more likely <laughs> say something they shouldn't than if they got their, uh, their guard up. So, you know, you kind of owe it to them not to trick them into sort of making a career damaging a thing. That being said, you know, we also like to, how can I put this? We don't tend to publish negative things, but there are a couple of things that we just won't go near because we can't say anything nice, so we won't say anything at all. Um, so you don't see bitchy things on FX Guide, but sometimes people say, why do you do something about that? I'm like, mm-hmm, because <laughs> I just think that it's overrated, overblown, or just yeah. not accurate, and I just leave it alone and walk away. Yeah, the higher ground is um, something that, like you say, doesn't get the clicks, but it's what is what makes FX Guide and FX PhD so well respected. Well, thank you. It's kind of you to say so. Um, I was also thinking then the reputation and the health of the artist's career, it also made me really think about um, how much FX Guide and Jeff Huser 
especially has focused on the health of our industry um, and that's on a, um, a global scale but also on a personal individual health um, so there's there's a wide range of, of topics it's not just about the tools and the latest research it's also about what is our industry doing and what's happening with with that so I was really wondering um, how do you feel personally about where the industry, the VFX industry is going and the wider industry? We've had a number of the large companies fall over, um, Rhythm and Hughes and um, yeah, just wondering personally, how are you feeling? Is it, is it still positive? Um, I guess it depends how you define what we're talking about. Like if you talk about it in a narrow sense, I mean, Rhythm and Hughes, in fairness, if you don't mind me saying so, was quite a while ago, right? That yeah. wasn't like a recent phenomenon. But um, the thing is, companies are going to come and go, right? I mean, it's just what happens. It's uh, not all companies are managed well and companies that, you know, have, I don't know, bad management decisions go away. Some of them go away and they shouldn't go away. Don't get me wrong. They're not all um, at fault. But nevertheless, you know, and it's hard. Like it's hard to, you know, most startups, if you just leave our industry out of it, most startups fail. So why would our industry be any different? But um if you narrowly define our industry in terms of doing kind of what we would have doing five, ten years ago, then it's not so good. If you define our industry in terms of being people at the forefront of producing a whole range of stuff with the tools and the skills that we characterized as being critical five or ten years ago, then it's, I think, looking really, really good. Um, and certainly one of the areas that I'm personally interested in is taking tech out of what you might call the narrowly defined TV film game and playing that tech in other areas. And I think there's enormous scope for professionals to apply stuff away from just what you might call the silver screen or the small screen. Yeah. I've seen in my own industry that um, broadcast has um, become not as main player as social or online and also exploring the possibilities of VR and AR and MR it's still um, looking at how are these experiences best used and how can that be um, enriching for the audience because at the end of the day I think that we're still learning what the language of these environments are so it's not a, a matter of shooting a film and then making it a VR experience it's actually finding a new new um, form of language in these experiences as well. So it feels like there's huge opportunities, but it's also, from my personal point, hard to know, should I be diving into VR and AR when I've got a lot of social videos that I could be putting out, which is earning a lot of money at the moment too? I mean, I think AR is going to be vastly huge. I, You know, AR is a terrific thing and will be enormous um it's going to be so enormous that talking about it as just one thing like ar will be a silly thing it'd be like saying the web's really big yeah you know, you'd be like really <laughs> gosh <laughs> huh it's kind of obvious um so yeah i think ar is going to be enormous and uh, mr could be really good as well if um, they can nail some of the problems there are some real problems with mr in the hype People talk about, oh, we're going to have like a contact lenses that are going to be, you know, transmitting stuff to your eye. And I'm like, okay, three problems. Firstly, how are you going to transmit the data? Because you don't have any kind of known way of transmitting that kind of data to a device that small at the bandwidth you need. And you're not even close. Second, how are you going to power it? You're nowhere near. And thirdly, like, how are you going to actually like, you know, run the tech in something that small without like heating up your eyeball? Um, you know, it's like absurd stuff. But if you take a step back from that and look at like AR kit and the stuff that Google's come out with, I mean, you know, I would be, if I was, if I was a young artist right now, I'd be spending every spare minute I had looking at uh, AR kit and stuff um, and ways of repurposing stuff into that. I think that's like going to be huge. And, you know, the first taste of that was when, um, when we had this sort of, uh, massive attack of people running around with their smartphones trying to find um, various uh, characters, let's say, that were in uh, 
in various places for a certain, you know, electronic game. And, uh, you know, while people mock that stuff um, in one sense, because it wasn't like hardcore AR or anything else, it was just sort of like overlay graphics, um, it was instantly a global phenomenon. So, yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that things are going to go that way. Going right back to FXPHD, there was a huge transition from a couple of years ago where it was really FXPHD 2.0, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And there was a little bit of a um, change in the in the model and how um, you opened it up as a free-for-all rather than um, subscribe for set three courses. What was the driving force behind the company making that change? Oh, there were a few things at stake, um, but uh, John engineered all of that and did a brilliant job doing it. Um, but, you know, the, when we started out, as you said, it was actually really important to have a term-based uh, approach where people were all working together and we were, you know, relying on the bit torrents and that would come out and everyone would share and that was the way of distributing it. At some point, we became a victim of our own success and we, were, I think, were too restrictive in that people wanted to learn when they wanted to learn. And so um, it's a hard thing, though, to, to sort of upend everything and and, uh, and change things. Um but, uh, you know, sometimes you have to do it and it was the right move and it's proven to be the right formula and, you know, it's great. Um, and it also tied in really well with me wanting to stop doing weekly background fundamentals. Um, I was doing, uh, in the case of background, I was doing a class a week apart from the break weeks for, for 10 years. And then on top of that, I was often doing another course or two. And so I'd literally producing, you know, I think it was, it was ridiculous. It was like weeks that I was producing, you know, three hours of HD production or two and a half hours of HD stuff a week. Uh, we had crews working, filming it. It was just like mad. Um, and as you say, the other thing is, uh, you know, the, the quality of the professors and the quality of their stuff, um, we, we're actually able to facilitate more high quality content because we can be more flexible with how we engage with those high quality um, professors. So there's a whole combination of reasons why it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, it was like, you know, kind of scary. And uh, as I said, you know, it was John who really like nailed it. I mean, honestly, not me, it was John. Um, looking at the production of that, I was always really interested when FXPHD started that you were based in um, different countries and time zones, and which seems like something that would be easily done now. But we're talking about 10 years ago and the amount of content that you're producing with professors creating content from numerous different countries. What sort of infrastructure did you have for collating all of the videos, editing, producing, um, storing, backing up, then distributing? What sort of back end are we looking at for FXPHD? Oh, there's been lots of stuff and it's evolved over the years. Um, at you know, various points, we've used just about every social um, collaborative tool. We use Slack. We use, you know, uh, everything from Google Docs to Evernote to, you know, um, Box to there's just tons of stuff that we've used. And then, of course, we've got uh, localized storage and um, remote storage and everything's backed up. And and there's like fail states because we actually get quite a few, you know, denial of service attacks and various other kind of things that um, – that need to be fended off. Actually, the really funny thing is, is a workflow problem, uh, or not a workflow problem, but I guess like a workflow thing, is that over a decade, I learned to get up early and work because the the world for me was awake when I got up, uh, which meant that John and Jeff and stuff were awake until about lunchtime. And then after lunch, the whole world went quiet. <laughs> and then by the you know, early evening, I was like, you know, a lone voice in the wilderness, which was fine in one sense, but I just learned that I... I could get up early, collaborate in the morning and then, you know, write in the afternoon and then, but whatever I do, like wake up early. So I still wake up now at like half past five and, and, um, and I don't think I ever stop now because I've sort of got into a 10 year habit of it. But, um, yeah, it's just weird with time zones. And it's also weird the number of times people send me emails, even today saying, Hey, I'd like to talk to you. Great. We'll organize it. And I say, so I'm in Sydney. They go, great. So I'll call you at 10. I go, okay, that's three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so if it's all the same with you, could we do it like maybe in the afternoon? So I don't really want to get up at three. Um, so, yeah. And, of course, the other problem you've got is London wakes up at night. So there are often days where I need to sort of almost sleep in the middle of the day because in the morning I'm talking to L.A. and at night I'm talking to London. And, uh, and yeah, you get these very long days with kind of a dead patch around 
in my case, afternoon. But you must have the same problem, right? Yeah, I've definitely come to learn um, about time zones and booking in because I've also um, got a day job. So I'm doing that in the evenings or before work, depending on whether it's in um, the States or the UK. I really, really enjoy talking to guests in Australia or New Zealand <laughs> because of that. <laughs> Um, the team, how, how big has uh, FX PhD and FX Guide become now? Do you have a team to help you out um, with all of the content that you're creating? I mean, it is a huge collaborative effort, but just like any freelance project, people are coming and going a lot. Um, so there's like a core of people and then there are people that are coming and going. Um, and also at various times, we go further into one thing or another. Um I certainly decided that uh, the long form FX Guide TV stuff wasn't working so well. It was like a huge taxing uh, effort to get that done. Um, and that was definitely a case of me sort of feeling like um, the long form free stuff on FX Guide TV wasn't as effective. Long, longer form stuff, obviously, on PhD is totally appropriate. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we, you know, we mix and match stuff around. Uh, and, you know, I think the other thing is, you kind of do this, I, I certainly do it because I love it, but, you know, I'm not like working for anybody else. So if there's something that we really like that we think is working really well, um, we tend to do more of that. And if there's stuff that we sort of find a drag and we don't think is working well, we just do a little less of that. And it's sometimes the case we don't necessarily announce that, you know, with a kind of big fanfare, we just kind of get on and do it. Um, so, yeah, it depends if the projects, uh, you know, when we were doing a lot of um, – well, you talked about Stu, like, I mean, when we had the first red camera, Stu and John and I flew off to New Zealand and just went on, you know, Firefox and flew around in helicopters shooting with the red camera and testing it out and doing stuff because you just had to get out in the field with the camera and do stuff. Like, that's what was required for that project. Um, being in darkened rooms is what's required when <laughs> working with real-time game engines. Yeah. Um, like, it just depends on the project and what, what you're doing. Um, I think that the whole sport that we do is very collaborative and anyone that doesn't think that it's collaborative should really uh, reconsider their options because you cannot do this unless you're willing to happily work with other people and share the glory and share the credit and, and you know, uh, be open to other people's uh, input. It's not a, you know, hierarchical structure. It's a, it's a people working together creatively should be fun, should be interesting, should be something that is, um, engaging i guess yeah i was um also wondering about your shooting on the red camera of stew and i think that made me think about all the other content that you've made for the courses which really made it so different to other tutorials and training sites you created content that you could then reuse throughout numerous courses um and I'm thinking of the short films that have been really successful in the early days of fx phd yeah, we had uh, we worked on short films that were Oscar nominated. We worked on short films that had lots of traction. We've done lots of things we've been really proud of. And also sometimes, as I say, we do experimental things that are, you know, just because they need doing. Um, and sometimes they're really, really hard because what you really want, what we want is the thing that we're making. <laughs> In other words, like when we get the first some new thing or we're trying to do something that hasn't been done before, um, be it virtual humans or red cameras or whatever, you kind of really want to be able to go online and look up how to do it. Only where are the ones that are meant to be making the thing? <laughs> is it the online thing that you can look up on how to do it? And so there are days, I swear to God, where you're just going, oh, my God, this is so hard. And, of course, somebody else then gets and goes, oh, this is great. It's so easy. I'm like, mm -hmm. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, we set ourselves challenges. Um, but, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, honestly, the thing that um, people respond to in FX PhD isn't, even uh, anything to do with us individually. It's the vast talent of the professors. Like the professors are just such an incredible group of people and so good in their discipline areas, in their areas of discipline, if you know what I mean, like what they, yeah. they're good at. They're specialists, they're good communicators, they're generous with their time. Like, you know, what makes PhD work is that these aren't people that can't get other jobs and so they're teaching instead. These are people that have absolutely no, no right to have enough free time to do this, but still um, come to the, you know, the party and do stuff. And I am in awe of the, um, 
of the profs and the work that they do and just how they do stuff. And, you know, whether it's a color grading course or whatever, you just feel like you totally believe because it's true that they know what they're talking about. They've done it. They're giving you real world perspectives and, you know, it's what you want, right? It's like when you're on set and you sit down beside someone because you, your, your department's not needed and you can just quiz them on stuff and learn a heap. It's that real world. They're actually out doing it. And of course, we, we unfortunately get people that say, oh, I'd really like to do a course. And you kind of say, well, what have you done? They're like, oh, I haven't done much, but I'm like really, you know, done all the thing and I'm really trying. I can do it. Well, you kind of need to have done it because there's talking about it and then there's doing it. And the profs at FX PhD are just, just incredibly experienced, insightful people. And that's what people respond to, right? It's that you can just tell that they know it from doing it, not know it from reading about it. My experience with so many of the different um, tutors, lecturers on FX PhD is that they're not teaching you the buttons, they're teaching you the fundamentals and the principles such as um, FX Guide tries to do, does with their articles as well. Um, for me, learning from Tim Clapham for Cinema 4D, really um, a lot of it I could have applied to other 3D applications as well because he's including that knowledge in with the and these are the tools that we're using kind of information and that's really really important because the tools change so much that um it's really that fundamental knowledge about that area of um discipline that you're going to carry another one is early on i did color grading courses that were based in final cut pro way back um but it was the fundamental knowledge of color and how to create a grade and why and how you're approaching it that allows an artist to translate it to apple color and then davinci resolve and then whatever else comes after it so that's what i really enjoyed about the content in fx phd that it's not just um click these buttons to make this looking product it's about the fundamentals that you're going to gain from it yeah absolutely i mean there's a new course out at the moment um that's to do with uh digital makeup and stuff and uh beauty work and the thing about that is it's a flame course right but i totally believe that if you were not a flame artist and you wanted to go as the course description says beyond blur it glow it and ship it um then you're going to learn an enormous amount um now of course, like obviously if you're a flame artist, it's very uh, particular, but you know, that stuff or whatever it is that whatever course you want to pick, it's, it's the, in the real world, I did this versus if you press this button, it does that, um, which is the difference. And again, that, you know, like honestly, the thing that you have to understand is that certainly for speaking from my own perspective now, like I'm not working as a day-to-day -day visual effects artist. I'm doing research and hopefully doing some stuff. I'm not sitting on my hands, but Nevertheless, like what you want is people in the room with clients and you need those people producing uh, courses at PhD. And um, yeah, and so there's a lot of um, applicability, I think, that surprises people um, about something that is a course that they don't sort of immediately think would be aimed at them and they start watching it and they just kind of get sucked in because, well, not sucked in, but I mean, you know, they get caught up in how useful it is, even though they might be doing something else completely different Yeah, in terms of what actual tools they're using. Yeah, I've definitely experienced that myself. I really enjoy how the company, FXPHD, is always looking at trying new things and the type of content that's in the classes. Some standout ones um, that I remember is with um, the Red Dwarf um, TV show where you're collaborating <laughs> and it just seemed so different at that point from what had come before. And so I'm just wondering now, you know, always looking at the type of content and how you're approaching training and how do you feel it is going to be for the future and trying new things and experimenting or have you found a recipe that really works for people? No, no. I mean, that's exactly what we're, it's exactly what we're talking about. Like, uh, so yeah, we, you know, every once in a while you need to, um, to dive into something that you think is important. Um, obviously we thought that, you know, effects in episodic television was really going to be huge and much better than what had been. And we thought it was a really good thing to do. And we had a great opportunity to work with um, a really good, you know, brand and have a, a production that kind of we put through on, that's what Red Dwarf was. 
and Doug was terrific as the director, just really great guy. Um, but you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So I'd get a job. I mean, I actually, you know, I guess I, I don't want to say I, I would have been a fight complete, but I mean, I think it was an expectation certainly that I'd go back to do the next series. And I was like, I'm, you know, doing other things now because it wasn't about trying to get a job or build my CV. It was about, you know, wanting to produce material, but the same thing happens. Like, you know, we've done the short films and because that was like a thing where, you know, digital cinematography was allowing people to produce basically a grade quality stuff, but in short format. Um, and it was a sort of a distribution possible thing, whereas like making a feature is huge, but then you'd have so much money out, the trouble of making the money back was like difficult. Um, and then, as I say, right now, I've been doing stuff with virtual humans. It's, you know, there are always new waves of stuff coming through and our job is to stay relevant and try and make sure we know what those things are. Um, but yeah, like when we first started doing VR stuff, it was like, you know, it was so beta alpha-ish and <laughs> trying to work it out. When it was like, we're like, ah, how do we sync these cameras? How do we solve this problem that they're not sunk? How do we get them all to start? How do we stop them from like having one of them that just didn't even switch on? We didn't know, you know, like just such fundamental stuff that you wouldn't even think of today. But obviously if you want to, you know, open up some new areas. And, and, and I guess the other thing is if you're going to do teaching and training and stuff, well, fundamentally what people want to learn about is things they don't know about. So if they already know about it because it's well established, it would be easy to teach it, but then who's, you know, the audience is like much smaller. Yeah. So you sort of, by definition, if you put yourself out there as someone that's going to teach new things, you spend a lot of your time trying new things. And, uh, but you know, I, we've had misses. I mean, I, you know, and I sound like too arrogant here, like we've completely dropped the ball on some things. We've not succeeded at others. We've certainly backed the odd wrong horse or, you know, thought that something would be a winner and it wasn't. Um, uh, I'm sure I've mischaracterized stuff in articles that uh, people have screamed at the screen and said, you know, but we'd like to think that our batting ratio is above average and we hope that it's done in the open and that people see what we're doing. It's kind of an honest thing. And as a consequence, um, you know, there's there's goodwill there because, you know, at the end of the day, people don't aren't interested in what we're talking about and showing, then we have nowhere you know, we're alone in the dark and that's it. Close the blinds and game over. Well, I just want to say once again, I, I personally am so grateful for what you, um, Jeff and John have contributed to the, the industry and also my own knowledge and growth. And I, I, I definitely know that you're really well respected and the, um, the batting average is extremely high. So thank you very much. Well, thank you, and I appreciate uh, inviting me on. I, I do so many interviews. It's weird to be the interviewee. <laughs> I keep on thinking of which line of questioning we should go down and then realize it's not my job to do that. <laughs> so I apologize if I've been, uh, if I've been recalcitrant in not uh, being uh, uh, recipient enough to the uh, direction that you had as an interviewer. It must be really horrible having people... Uh, I know it's a common problem, right? You just don't want to interview people that do interviews because they want to drive things. So anyway, you've been very tolerant, so thank you. Uh, no, um, I'm, I'm really just starting out and I've enjoyed every interview that I've done. Um, and I do treat it more as me just chatting with somebody rather than an in-depth interview. And I started out on episode one without practicing or doing a cold one. And it's just like, I'm going to learn as I go. So I've probably made so many horrible mistakes. So I'd, I'd love any sort of feedback or critique that you would like to give me to improve. Um, I mean, it just depends what you think your audience is like. And I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong. I'm just saying like, I always imagine what my audience is like. And my audience is technically literate and yeah and doesn't want to be spoken down to. And in my case, I always think that the audience would like me to be slightly above what their comfort zone is on what I'm talking about. So that that might cause them to reach into stuff that they're not, you know, they're not doing. Um, and whenever I feel like I'm getting away from that, I feel less comfortable. Yeah. And, uh, so that's not advice to you per se. It's just, you know, I find it really helpful to, I do, a, I'm a visual guy. I just, I visualize the audience and, and if I feel like that audience is rolling their eyes or thinking that I'm trying it on or whatever, then I kind of cringe and try and back away. And if I think the audience is leaning into it, then, and I'm leaning into it, then it's all good. Yeah, I've definitely um, visualized the audience for this show and I'm 
also sort of at the same time trying to connect with those who are listening and seeing uh, the value. So it is definitely me trying to bring them content that um, is beneficial and interesting and that is enlightening to them. And so, yeah, I'm definitely trying to visualize who this audience is and not make them cringe too much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, audiences are such a valuable thing. I mean, they, you know, it is just extraordinary that people give you time. It's just, you know, I mean, just unbelievable that they do that. Um, And so, yes, with that goes a huge amount of like, you know, I'm going to give you literally hours of my time. So please don't waste it. And I, I don't think that you do, and I hope we don't. But yeah, um, yeah it's it's a definitely a thing. And I think people that don't do that, that become arrogant about it, that are too inside baseball and chatting about their own stuff and kind of insidey and clicky, yeah. just really are, are you know don't deserve an audience. But anyway, you're yeah. not doing that. And I thank you for having me on. <laughs> uh, thank you. And now it's time for the pro video packs. So, Mike, what is your pro video pack? Um, it's, it's <laughs> I, actually, I was going to, um, flag if I can, um, there's, uh, uh, two minute papers, the, um, I've got the name wrong, I'm sure. But anyway, um, that's been going for a while now. That is exactly what I was talking about in terms of interpreting uh, papers. I just want to give a shout out cause it's like a super useful thing. Um, and, uh, so yeah, when it comes to things that, um, that I use every day, and that I love to death, it's completely different to what I'd sort of recommend for others. I mean, my what I use every day things aren't necessarily brand new and shiny. They're just things that I love and hug and want to be buried with, like my Canon 5D. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it uh, definitely does. It's it's pretty open. We've had pencil and paper as an answer, and we've had tools, but Canon 5D, that was such a big change in the industry for those to make great looking videos. It's not even that. It was like, I think Stu once described it like this. It was like going to film school. And I, I would recommend it, whether it's a Canon 5D or whatever, you need to get a camera that you love to death, that you want to be buried with, and then use it like a lot. And you just learn so much about everything from composition to what makes interesting work to how faces react to light. Um, and, you know, it's it's not about – it has to be more than a happy snap because the thing about the phone is you don't control the lensing and you don't control the exposure and you don't control a whole, whole lot of stuff. So you don't learn it from an iPhone. You learn it from a camera. And you want a camera that lets you separately control the aperture, the um, the exposure time, and obviously you need to change the uh, – the lensing and stuff, and that as you play with the various, you know, ISO and stuff to get the right combination that gives you the look that you want, it's just like a veil is lifted and you start watching films and doing stuff, even if it's computer graphics, just completely uh, differently. And I find that there's just time and time again when I spoke to professionals when I was like a decade ago about, you know, advice for young people, they would just say film stuff photograph stuff, get a camera and get out there. And to this day, you know, the people that I respect the most in the industry, like Rob Legato and and people like that, are just at their heart kind of camera guys. And they're really good with stuff that relates to cameras and real things. And, um, and as cool as they are, and like some of the coolest people I know, like Ben Grossman, just hyper cool guy, like I wish I was half as cool as he is on his worst day. But they just have a tactile kind of relationship to technology and stuff from picking it up and getting in there and doing it. And, you know, this standoffish thing doesn't work. You've got to get your hands dirty. And so, you know, maybe a Canon 5D is outside your price range, but like it can be a, you know, 70, it can be a secondhand 70, I don't care. But you've got to, and then you've got to love it to death. Yeah. And then you've got to have a week or two where you only use a 50 millimeter lens or equivalent. And you're just going to learn so much. Yeah. Yeah, that was a huge um, pivot in my own um, creative growth. Was it was a six um, six D for me, and it was a fifty mil lens. Um, and there are there are some cheaper um, fifty mil lenses out there, and secondhand cameras as well. But yeah, just working with that one lens, where with understanding depth of field and bokeh, and um, just taking 
thousands of photos and understanding the mistakes just as much as the ones that look really good and why they look good, critiquing yeah. yourself. And then, of course, you know, you get into Lightroom and you just learn so much more from what you could have done when you start playing with, you know, what you want to do to that picture. Yeah. And you learn that it's so much better to get it in camera than yeah. just try and fix it in post. And yeah, it's, 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 you understand the language. It's just everything. Anyway, yeah. I've gone on too much, but I just feel like that's the thing that I, I mean, I have a bunch of other cameras, but I have my 5D Mark III and I just, people are like, why don't you upgrade it? And I'm like, I don't want it. And they're like, well, it's kind of big and heavy. And I'm like, I like it. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. So there you go. Um, we also like to know who you who you follow online. So who are you following online? Um, I guess a bunch of people. Obviously, I follow my, you know, John, Jeff, Jason Wingrove, people like that. Um, I, I love following uh, Doug Robel, who's at uh, D, uh, Digital Domain. He's just um, his work in the Academy and stuff and the Cytex is awesome. Obviously, people like Paul DeBevic and stuff. Um, and then, of course, lately I've been getting heavily into um, real-time engines, and so I've just fallen in love with the um, team at Epic Games and the work that they've been doing in sort of producing stuff outside a game, like taking the game engine outside the game, and they're just some genius talent in that company right now. Um, and, yeah, so, I mean, it's like there are just people that do really cool stuff that I just find to be um, really, really helpful. Awesome. Um, Mike, do you have an inspirational video that you would like to share with the audience? Uh, a really big turning point for me in uh, in realizing the stuff that I was talking about earlier, like which was you know real time faces um, interaction, blah blah blah, was when I first got switched on to Mark Sager's research in uh, New Zealand. Now Mark was on the Weta team. He left, went to Auckland University. He's now set up Soul Machines. Um, Mark's now uh, a good friend of mine. We've been drinking in far too many places around the world for me to count on. But if you look at his original Baby X video, and that's now out of date insofar as he's gone much later, like he's done a lot more with it. And he's gone on to do Nadia and to do like a bunch of new digital human stuff. But his work in um, neurochemistry combined with graphics uh, was just so inspirational. And it was a huge deal for me when Mark generously uh, offered me to help author a paper with him for the communication of the ACM. I mean, just really a big deal. Um, so yeah, I mean, Mark, apart from being just genius level, way clever, is a heck of a nice guy and is doing incredibly important work. And uh, so inspirationally, um, and also as a drinking partner, Mark would definitely get my vote. <laughs> awesome. And finally, where can the listeners find you online? Well, if they haven't worked that out by now, it's like <laughs> no point in trying. Um, I think you, you, your listeners will have gathered that I've got something to do with FX Guide and FX PhD. Um, I guess the only other thing is my Twitter account, which is Mike Seymour. Cool. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much, Mike, for being on the show. Really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. See ya. All right. See ya. Join the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Pro Video Podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes.